You're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi, folks, and welcome to the show. This is Richard Zink, and you're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. This is episode 94, another 40th anniversary episode, and it features a discussion with past chair Bob Starbuck. He was chair of the biopharmaceutical section of the ASA in 1994. And as a reminder for these discussions, please note that people are sharing their personal opinions, so please don't overinterpret their comments as representing the groups or organizations with which they participate. Now let's start the show. As part of our celebration of the 40th anniversary of the biopharmaceutical section, I'm talking with Robert Starbuck, most recently served as Assistant Vice President, Special Project at Wyeth Research. He was chair of the biopharmaceutical section of the ASA in 1994. Good morning, Bob. Thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Well, let's learn a little bit about you. How did you start your statistics journey? Well, I attended Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, um, years ago, and received a BS in math in uh, June of 1971. And when I was a sophomore, I took my first course in statistics, and uh, we had an examination, and the, the professor for that course was unavailable to, uh, so he had one of his colleagues come in and, and proctor the course, and that turned out to be Donald Weber. And uh, I had a few questions uh, at the end of the exam after people had departed the room and asked him a few questions about statistics and how it got used. And he took me back to his office and, and introduced me to linear regression. He was teaching a course in that. And uh, I thought, wow, here's a good case of how mathematics can be used to actually answer real-life questions and provide uh, knowledge about uh, data beyond just having numbers. And uh, so that led uh, to me taking all the uh, courses that were at Miami, which at the time were relatively small because the statistics department was uh, or part of the math department and was uh, expanding its curriculum to be able to offer a master's degree. And so I took the courses uh, that they had at the time. And um, Don was a graduate of NC, he's got his PhD at NC State and, and uh, was a very uh, uh, fond of that memory and, and told me about that. And uh, I applied for a National Defense Education Act fellowship, NDA fellowship, and was uh, awarded that. And um, that was for me to attend NC State University, which I did with my wife. I was married at the time. And, uh, and um, we stayed there for three and a half years. I did my master's and PhD and, uh, and had a, a great experience there. Got my first job in Connecticut working for an electric utility company, and I was in their environmental protection branch, but I was a solo statistician, which uh, uh, on reflection, I think that's not necessarily the best choice for your first employment as a statistician leaving grad school. Um, I missed the, being around uh, uh, colleagues with, within my own discipline of statistics and uh, had a good time, though. 
and I liked the people there, but it was not uh, enriching from a point of view of, of um, using statistics and, and um, uh, expanding my knowledge of statistics. So I left there after 16 months and went to work uh, at the Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C., where I knew a person um, that I was in graduate school with that was managing a group there, and uh, I got offered a job and took it, and it probably would have stayed there, uh, but the cost of living in the D.C. area is uh, is quite high, and still is, and uh, was beyond uh, my ability to afford a house we were renting, and I just didn't think that I wanted to commute uh, more than an hour each way and probably two hours each way to, to get to a community where I could afford a house, so that led me to start thinking about other uh, employment opportunities. And at a JSM meeting in Chicago, I met up with uh, one of my good friends. I used to play uh, uh, handball with him and uh, at NC State. He was in the grad program here as well, just a few years ahead of me. And uh, he was heading a group of statisticians, clinical programmers, and data managers at Burroughs Welcome, which is now part of GlaxoSmithKline located in the Research Triangle Park, which, of course, is only a short distance from NC State and Chapel Hill, for that matter, where I also took some courses. And uh, uh, he offered me, asked me to come down for an interview, and I did. And I really liked what I saw. And I thought, boy, this is, and I really liked the mission uh, of, uh, of healthcare. I think it's great that we're able to do things that help people overcome illnesses uh, or function better and uh, and uh, statistics plays a, a significant role in the um, uh, study of uh, new medicines in, in humans and, and animals, but mainly in humans in the case of my job there. And I accepted the job, and we moved back to, to, um, to Raleigh. So uh, the rest of my career was in the pharmaceutical industry, and I did go to several other companies after Burroughs Welcome, uh, but that was for career advancement opportunities and uh, really worked out very well for me. So... That's how I got into uh, how I really uh, went from a student in statistics in undergrad school to uh, um, a senior manager in the pharmaceutical industry. So it was it was a lot of fun. I'd do the career over again if I uh, had to had to do my career over. That's always uh, that's always a you know the best praise is that if you could repeat what you've done, that you'd do it the same. <laughs> yes, um, for sure. And and you're retired now. And can you describe what you're you're currently involved with as far as statistics? Yeah, I'm involved uh, through the NC State again. Uh, there's a College of Sciences now. It had it has uh, six different uh, departments, including statistics, is, that makes up the uh, College of Sciences. And I'm on the board of directors. I'm currently the chair of that. And, and uh, we have a fiduciary responsibility, of course, to make sure that the money that they have, uh, donations and so forth, are being managed uh, uh, well. But I've been able to uh, establish a, uh, was a, an actual physical lunch meeting with undergraduate students um, in the College of Sciences. And what we do is we, we take them to lunch. And at, well, first of all, we, we, uh, the hosts are all coming from the board of directors or people who have been on the board of directors of that foundation. And we, um, uh, advertise, uh, once a quarter or once, excuse me, once a semester, the spring and the fall semester that we're going to hold these lunches and put our a brief CV out, uh, each of the hosts does. 
and the students get informed about this um, by the Department of Student Affairs, and uh, they have the opportunity to sign up for um, one of the hosts that they they look at the CVs and decide which one, if they if any, that they would like to uh, participate in a lunch. Now we're doing those virtually now because of the COVID environment, but that actually works out pretty well because. Some of the students are still off campus. Uh, one of the ones I had uh, just a few, about a month ago, was uh, in our home in New York, the state of New York, and that would not have worked if we were to, trying to do an actual physical uh, lunch, uh, obviously. So um, they get to sign up. We take and we spend about an hour with them and, uh, and answer questions that they have about working in industry, uh, which they get very little exposure to people from industry while they're in their uh, college years and that hasn't changed much since I was in college and and um, I think that makes a students will not ask questions of people that are from industry if there are professors around well we have no professors at these lunches it's just us the hosts with the students and it's been very successful um, the students really enjoy it um, the program is uh, is doing well in fact I think NC State according to my contacts and the uh, and the university is looking to uh, do a, a university-wide uh, system similar to the one we're, that we're operating now. And uh, that, I think, is a, a great opportunity to introduce students um, in um, the undergraduate end. We're going to go to the graduate students as well and, and give them an opportunity to meet with people who are likely to be their employers because the, most of the people coming out of the university with a degree uh, – will be working in industry, not staying in an academic setting. A number of them will, but uh, most of the majority of people coming out of a, of a university actually are not employed in the academic sector. So that's been a lot of fun, uh, and uh, I look forward to doing that <laughs> for the remainder of my time on Earth, hopefully, as long as I'm sane. And, um, and it's, uh, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, so my role there is really to expose them to also to what it's like to be a statistician or working in the pharmaceutical industry. And I actually have three presentations I give the students who want to hear them in a Zoom meeting, um, of course, at this stage, uh, and uh, walk them through what it's like to develop a, a new medicine and what are the different kind of roles that, that are involved in doing that, including statistics, of course. And then I walk them through an example of an actual clinical trial. So that gives them a lot of an insight into what's involved in working in the pharmaceutical industry and, and what, how, what role statistics play. So that's, that's really the, the, the direct contact I have in terms of my profession uh, with anybody. I'm also the chair or the, the treasurer of a professional science a society that is um, match or helping research one universities work uh, uh, collaboratively with uh, research intensive uh, industry uh, companies. And um, uh, that's really similar to the role, but it was not exactly the same. I helped, I was one of the founders of SPAG, which is a statistics um, endeavor in the ASA, the American Statistical Association. And uh, so the, my involvement there led to my interest in, and uh, continuing to uh, help the industry and, and academe succeed in, in, in collaborative research, which is if you look at the publications and you, and you uh, hear from the company Elsevier, which really has a significant role in, in the cataloging uh, publications and 
and providing information about them, those are the ones that are most frequently cited. They have the highest rate of citations in the uh, in journals. So um, that's really where the, the big value is, I think, in terms of research and when you get a diversity of industry and academe working together to solve problems uh, as opposed to just focused on academic or just industry uh, uh, people doing research. Anyway, that's what I'm currently doing amongst a lot of other activities that are outside of the realm of, of uh, statistics altogether. Well, it's always uh, enjoyable to to interact with students um, and, and particularly in helping them sort of make that next step into their careers. Um, so thanks for your efforts in helping them uh, find their way into the pharmaceutical industry. And I should also mention I, I got a program like that established at my undergraduate school too, my university. So they're doing something on a smaller scale, but just within the Department of Statistics. So it's, uh, it's I, I like both of my alma maters and try to support them both. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, the biopharmaceutical section, uh, as we mentioned, is currently celebrating its 40th anniversary, and, and you were chair of the section in 1994, about halfway through the second decade. Uh, can you recall what moved you to serve as chair of the section? Well, I was a member of the section and uh, got acquainted with a lot of the, the people, I, and I knew some of the people that were the chairs of the of the society, and I like playing a leadership role. I like the challenges and rewards of leadership, and I like to get things done and efficiently. And so I figured I could do that role um, successfully. And and so I offered myself up for nomination, or somebody nominated me. I can't remember. It's been 28 years now. And uh, and so I became the, the chair. And uh, I think we had uh, um, a, a good run there. Uh, and. Uh, I stayed active in the session for as long as I was still uh, in the uh, workforce until I retired. Um, so uh, for me, and that's the reason my career was, was largely in management, uh, as I like to have the ability to influence the way things are going to happen and, uh, and and make sure they happen successfully. So and you can do that. You have a better chance of doing that if you have some um, greater um Role than if you, than just a, a a bench level statistician. Nothing wrong with that that as well, and, and uh, they're important too, very important. But yeah, and, uh, I just I like the role of leadership. So for me, that's a good fit. And do you recall some of the issues the section was tackling at the time? Oh, it's hard to remember exactly. I know that that some things that came out then or, or not much later was adaptive adaptive randomization which was uh, something that, that had to be kind of sold to the FDA so that they would accept that as a, as a way to, to um, uh, conduct a clinical trial. And that has been successful. Um, but I don't recall whether that was what the connection to that was in terms of being accepted versus when I was the chair. I think it was not too long after that, but I don't exactly recall the history. I just know that was something that, that wasn't uh, promoted at the time. Um, and became promoted, and then I knew the person who was the, the uh, key player, one of the key players in that. So, that uh, those are the kinds of issues that they're really helping uh, come up with some novel approaches to uh, conducting a clinical trial. That uh, always, of course, takes some time before people say, "Oh, yeah, that I'm comfortable with that," and uh, we'll, we'll allow you to do that from the point of view of FDA for the regulatory. Um, affairs uh, or regulatory agencies, I should say. 
And do you have any regrets from your time as chair? No, I would do that all over again, too. I, I was involved in a number of other things, of course, with the ASA. So this is one of the things I was involved with at the time. But um, I, I liked the section. It was very helpful to get acquainted with other statisticians doing the same kind of work that you're you're doing when you're a, a biopharmaceutical statistician. And uh, uh, lots of good memories there. I, I got acquainted with not just the statisticians working in industry, but the heads of departments and uh, and probably spent more time with the, the the academic folks than I did with the with the industry folks but I was involved with both of course and uh, really enjoyed the the uh, the um, ability to meet people and, and and interact with them and sometimes uh, engage in, in stuff that was beneficial to the ASA with them as well so yeah I I would do that over as as well Great. Again, uh, very high praise. And any thoughts on how the the section is functioning today, and and where it might go in the future? Yeah, I, I haven't really been involved with that particular section for a while. It, it's uh, I, I'm a little involvement with the ASA uh, up until maybe uh, or I think I, somewhere in the uh, maybe well actually it was in a JS I was in a JSM virtual panel uh, just uh, at the last JMS, JSM, but it, my involvement with the ASA is relatively infrequent now. I was involved with the ASA uh, for some years after uh, I retired, but one of the things when you retire, uh, when you're working for a company, they uh, they pay your annual dues, but more importantly, they pay your cost to travel to ASA meetings. And uh, when you've got to do that out of your own pocket, it, you, you have to have more of a reason to go than, than, than just I'd like to catch up with my buddies uh, or perhaps make a presentation. But then I did a few things there uh, from a presentation point of view, even after I retired, but um, um, my involvement has been more directed toward this other professional society by far uh, that, that is uh, also involved with the, the research environment. But as I mentioned, is trying to help companies, research companies and research universities uh, partner successfully in research. So that's where my energy is these days. So you volunteered for numerous opportunities outside of the biopharmaceutical section. Can you share some of these positions and what led you to serve? Yeah, well, I, I became an ASA fellow. I wound up being a member of the, the Committee on Fellows and then chaired it one year and enjoyed that. It's uh, really delightful to see the applications because you can appreciate how much, uh, how significant the knowledge is in, in our um, and the people that are statisticians, it's just really a pleasure to see what they're able to do and, and have done. So that was a lot of fun. I was a, a member in the chair of the committee on nominations, which uh, selects the president elects and so forth, uh, the key positions in the, in the administration of the American Statistical Association. And I was a founding member and, and the second chairperson of SPAG, uh, Statistical Partners Among Academia, Industry, and Government. I, uh, was a founding member and second chairperson of the Deming Lectureship, which is a standard uh, lecture giving at the uh, JSMs. Had a lot of fun uh, doing a, a, a department review for Brigham Young University, and I did that with Bob Hogan. That's all. He was, uh, for those who know Bob, you know how much fun that could have been and was. Uh, for you, who, you that don't know Bob, who's died several years ago, he's one of the authors of a Hogan Craig, uh, a, a standard textbook, at least it has been. I don't know whether 
how widely it's used now, but he's just a deli- was a delightful human being and couldn't have asked for more a person in academia more fun to interact with and and that that was just great. Anyway, another thing that, that I think is probably more meaningful to statisticians and is that at the time I was a uh, in, in uh, the industry, there was no really good source of data for what we should be paying statisticians. Uh, there was federal information, but it lumped in chemists, uh, physicists, and and other and mathematicians and so forth, all in kind of the same bucket. And there's no reason to think that st- uh, salaries for any one of those professions should be similar or equal to the the others. There's just different demand uh, and different supply, and uh, so I talked to Ray Waller, uh, who was at the time the uh, executive director of the ASA, and said, Ray, this uh, here we are, a statistical organization, and we're not collecting any data on ourselves that would be useful in, in helping to justify salaries for for statisticians in, in industry. There's a survey you guys do for, for, for statisticians in academe, but there's nothing outside of that. And a good majority of your membership is actually not in academe. And so... I'd be willing to do a survey, uh, collect the data, and analyze it and report it if you'll if you'll give me the information I need to do that. Get the sample uh, designed, and and I did. So uh, we published that in uh, in the um, Anstat News, and I did the first several of those, and then the ASA decided that they would take that over, uh, make that a, a regular thing that they would uh, support and do, and they have and. I can tell you, I'm sure that the salaries that, that emanated or resulted from that were all much better than they were pre that. So you knew exactly, you know, you had a better idea of what what um, what to pay statisticians coming out of school and what they should be paid with, uh, you know, if they'd been in, out in the in, out of the academic realm and in, in the job for you know, let's say, ten years or whatever, mid career, that kind of thing. So. I really felt good about that, and uh, <clears throat> and I know it's had a, a very positive effect. And and then subsequent to that, you know, another thing I was involved with was several president ASA president task forces. Uh, so I was a member and chair of two of those task forces, and uh, and had a lot of fun working with people doing what the the, the current chair uh, wanted to see accomplished during his or her tenure as a as a as a chair of the. As a, as a president of the ASA, so that that is really what I've been doing uh, that related to the uh, the ASA, and uh, and it's all been fun doing. And uh, you, I wouldn't be doing the same things over again because they're already established. But there's always opportunities for doing things that the uh, that the ASA is wanting to have done as it evolves over time. Well, that's uh, thanks for having the uh, the forethought to. Um to collect the salary information uh, for outside of academia. I'm sure we've all benefited from that, so I appreciate that. Um, You're welcome. You've spent your career in the pharmaceutical industry. What major changes really stand out in your mind? Well, I think the one I mentioned, adaptive randomization, is one that has become much more uh, in vogue, not not for all trials, but for some trials and uh, and then another thing, when I was in, in um, learning what it was like to be a statistician in the pharmaceutical industry, one of the common methods in, the, in that kind of a setting where you're running clinical trials on humans, humans have the right to uh, to drop out of the trial uh, if they just decide they don't want to participate any longer. And so you wind up with with 
data over time for if let's say you have a five-week trial and weekly observations uh, at the end of each week on on once the trial starts for a patient um, you may be taking a measurement and then a week later another measurement on whatever the scale is that you're using to to decide whether you have efficacy or not and so you have incomplete data, and one of the common methods of analyzing that data was just doing an endpoint analysis and putting all the data uh, together, regardless of whether it represented one week of exposure or two weeks of exposure and so forth. And uh, for me, that didn't make a lot of – I understood the reason for that, but I thought, well, if you got a five-week trial, why don't you also look at week one and, and – uh, and consider the last, and, and then week two, and consider the data uh, last, just like you would the endpoint at week five. And so you get, you know, some dropout at week, some loss of participation in week one, but then a little more when you count week two and so forth. So you get a kind of get a better profile as, over the course. So I called that last observation carry forward and uh, did that for the first time with a drug we were studying, uh, a, a drug for depression. And uh, the FDA thought, hey, that's cool. We like that. So uh, that kind of has had become a standard item since I haven't done analysis uh, for the pharmaceutical industry for a number of years. I, don't, I think it's still in use, but I don't know for sure. But it was one of the methods that became fairly common uh, within a few years of when I uh, provided that method to the FDA as a, as a way to see a little more into the data than uh, than had been. So that was those were a couple of things. Now there were other things, obviously, that have been introduced um, along the way as well. And uh, those are a couple of things that I can re- remember um, that have been added to the what's considered acceptable and um, and valuable. So that's uh, that's as much as I can answer <laughs> to that question. How do you think the industry will change in the next ten to fifteen years? Well, I think uh, it's we're going to for some diseases. And an example is uh, infection. We've been using antibiotics, uh, overly using antibiotics, not only in humans but in in the animals, in cattle and, and hogs and chickens and so forth. Some of the food that we consume and uh, bacteria are becoming um, um, ex- familiar with that and are becoming immune to some of the treatments and antibiotics uh, sounds like, well, that's okay. Why don't we develop more antibiotics? Well, uh, pharmaceutical industries that live on profits, they, if they don't make a profit, they go out of business and antibiotics don't really provide much of a source of income because they're short-term uh, therapy. You give an antibiotic for, let's say a, a day or two, or maybe a week, and, and you're done. So there's not a lot of medicine being consumed and, and obviously by a patient and a lot of uh, expense. Uh, so the cost of developing a new medicine, when you look at the, co- the cost relative to when you add in the, the medicines that fail, never make it to market because of side effects or lack of efficacy, you're talking over $2 billion to uh, the, the actual cost for developing new medicines. When you factor in, in factor in the ones that drop out of the, uh, but still cost money. You can't you spend money until you decide that they're not effective or, or not safe. And um, it's hard to to, uh, to recover your costs for an antibiotic. So a lot of companies have basically abandoned that area of research. And uh, and it's going to take federal funding, in my opinion, to get um, enough money to fund the development of antibiotics. And if we don't do that, we're going to see 
the bacteria being just as bad as the COVID virus uh, if we don't have a way to treat them. So that's one of the concerns that I that I think we have. We have a way to deal with that, but it's uh, federal funding isn't exactly the simplest thing in the world to acquire. And uh, and we also have a population uh, that don't really understand what the costs are in, in uh, for developing new medicine, and they think that you know the pharmaceutical firms, big pharma, is just raking in money right and left, and uh, and that's a misconception. So anyway, that that's one of the things that's going to um, um, be necessary, I think, for us uh, as humans to start funding you know, some of the development that, and most of the cost of development, by the way, are, are borne by the pharmaceutical industry, not the NIH or other federal organizations. Yeah, and uh, okay, and then another thing is, uh, I think we're getting a greater understanding of how to customize treatments based on genetics of individuals. Some things like uh, sickle cell anemia is now being uh, treated fairly successfully, and and uh, and that's because of advances in science. And I think we'll still we'll see more and more ability to uh, make uh, a person healthy again by manipulating genetics as opposed to. Uh, working with, with chemicals so or biologicals. So those are some of the changes I think we'll see in the next 10 to 15 years. And final question, how important is it for statisticians to be involved with scientific or professional organizations such as the ASA, and how, how would your career be different? Well, I, I think it's very valuable, and, I, and I'll give you some examples of uh, the professional society obviously provides a venue for uh, continued learning. There are lots of talks given, uh, lots of things published by the um, JASA, you know, the, uh, the Journal of American Statistical Association and other uh, periodicals from the societies that are involved in statistics. So uh, it, it gives you a chance to learn these statistical methods. Uh, and if you're a presenter, it gives you a chance to uh, speak in public and gain the uh, experience and confidence in doing that. Uh, it, it gives you the ability to work with others. Uh, and the, the nice thing about working in a, in a professional society is that the people you're working with don't report to you. And so it gives you an opportunity to um, to learn how to, to influence people because it's all influence skills that are brought to bear in getting people to go along with you or, or work with you. And because uh, you have no control over them, you're, you're not paying their, their salary, you're not uh, involved in their advancement in their own organization. So you're working with your peers and, uh, and people in, in, in the professional society gives you the ability to, to grow. Um, it also gives you a chance to, to meet your peers and, ex- and ch- share experiences. You, you can talk about new methods and things like that openly, uh, even with the statisticians that work for your competitors. And that's fine. Your, the companies uh, are, are very uh, supportive of that. And it gives you a, a valuable context for your current situation. You're not, you're not the only one that's uh, in the same boat, as you will. Um, there are a lot of other people that are in the same situation that you're in or similar to it. And by sharing uh, your experience with them and talking with them, it can help you put the proper perspective on where you are and, and how your career might um, play out or at least get to the next level. It also creates contacts for future employment opportunities because people get to see you if you're not a fly on the wall, um, if you're active and engaged and, and, uh, and making a difference. Uh, 
people notice that and you become somebody that they may want to, uh, uh, to hire or, or, or have you uh, consult with her or whatever. And I found that I also created some lifelong friends uh, when I was in the professional society, of the ASA still talk to interact with some of them. So it's a, a good way to meet some nice people and uh, that you have some, some, you have some commonality with and, uh, and, uh, and enjoy that. It's a test bed for leadership too. You, as I mentioned, you're, you will learn how to influence people not under your direct control and, it gives you an opportunity to hone your skills at leading teams. Uh, so you'll learn communication and influence uh, skills that uh, will be valuable to you in your, in your own organization. And it gives you an opportunity to make a real difference in your profession, uh, both locally with chapters and universities and nationally with uh, sections and major meetings and key initiatives. Uh, professional societies uh, really depend on volunteers. They really, they couldn't exist without them. And the more you do that, is valuable to your society, the more I think you'll feel enriched and and rewarded for your efforts. So I benefited greatly myself in all these ways from uh, my membership and involvement with the ASA. And and, uh, I think those who are uh, wondering whether to join a professional society, I would say do it uh, as soon as you can. You can do that even in undergraduate years of your if you're in school uh, still, and uh, and uh, certainly thereafter, it, it's worthwhile. You'll 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 benefit from it for sure. So no reason not to do it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, thanks for your time. And in most cases, in most cases, you're you're if you're employed in industry, your company will will pay the cost of uh, of membership, which is not is not all that high, and but they'll pay your cost for membership and also to attend meetings, uh, which we will hopefully be able to again in person before uh, too many months go by. Well, thanks for your time today, Bob, and and thanks for your contributions to the biopharmaceutical section. You're most welcome, Richard. Thanks for asking me to participate in this. And there you have it, episode 94 with Bob Starbuck. Do you have an idea for a podcast? Are you part of a scientific working group that wants to show off their research? Want to discuss a new book that you've published? Want to dig deep into an important topic that may not get the appropriate bandwidth at conferences? Let's talk about it. Send me an email at richard.c.zinc at gmail.com. That's richard.c.zinc at gmail.com. In the meantime, get that COVID vaccine, and we'll see you soon. Until next time.